Um, are there any questions or thoughts before we go on with what we have to talk about tonight? Yes. Right. If you have a problem, it's because you have the karma to have the problem. But if you're having trouble dealing with it, if if you actually stand back and look at everything that happens to you, all all the the angst about coping is because we don't feel that we have enough energy, or we're not sure that we have the right kind of energy for what's required. Okay. I mean, that's I'm sure that's what I was saying. And just energy, just flat out having enough energy, having faith that we have enough energy, is about 90% of our stress in most situations, if you stand back and really think about it. Because if you believe that you have the capacity to go forward and deal with it, then where is the stress? The stress comes because there's the fear that we don't, which, of course, you know, sometimes we don't, but it's, it's, it gets to be a catch-22 problem. That's why I mentioned, I recall last week, about Yogananda creating the energization exercises, which is just a direct exercise for being able to generate energy at willpower by drawing on the infinite source and being able to direct that energy at will. And you sort of, those of you who practice them, they're just a little set of exercises, takes less than 15 minutes to do them. And you, you think of it, you can fall into the habit of thinking of it as physical, but it isn't physical. It's, it's training yourself to be able to apply energy at the instant of the command of the will. And when you get into that habit, then you can do it mentally, physically, you can do it emotionally, you can do it in all circumstances. And if you can apply energy and direct it at will, and that implied in that is that you can also control it, that it doesn't fly off the handle, then basically that's your fundamental building block of every situation that you ever deal with. So it's good to practice that, because sometimes we look at problems and we think that each one of them is unique. And we don't realize that they all have the same generic solution, which is energy of the right kind directed properly. And if you practice that skill, then you can uh, solve all problems. Things get, you know, there's a lot of things that, that, uh, that we have the karma to be vulnerable to, to persuade us that we don't have the energy or to, or to fight against our ability to direct it or to dislodge um, the, the harmony of it. And everybody has a different set. You know, some people are financially insecure, some people are afraid of relationships, some people have physical health issues, some people are just lazy, some people um, don't like to concentrate, they like to be excited all the time. You know, everybody has a different set. But the result of all of them is that in some way we either have insufficient, wrong quality, or, under, or, or badly directed energy, you know? Sometimes people, you realize that if they, if you just calmed down and dealt with it, it would be much, it wouldn't be hard to deal with. I often tell the story, I may have even told it here, of being two years old and taking all the toys off my toy shelf. Did I tell it in this class? Yeah. But the whole issue was, I had plenty of energy to do it. It wasn't even a hard job. I just didn't want to. (laughs) So I spent, I directed all my energy into being emotionally upset because my mother was making me do something. Whereas if I had just taken a fraction of that energy and just done the task, it would have been no problem. I, as an adult person, on occasion I have done things similar. <laughs> I remember once when, during one of the 
<laughs> brief periods when David was actually my boss in the formal sense of a relationship that doesn't work real great. <laughs> but he, he was because of the various departments that we were both working in at the village. And he came home once and I had this project that, that he had the misfortune to have to tell me I was going to have to do. And I didn't want to do it because I was afraid of it. And I didn't have confidence that I could do it. And I became extremely agitated. And of course, being my husband, as well as the bearer of the bad tidings, he was beginning to backpedal and say, well, you know, maybe you don't really have to do it. And, but I remember turning to him and just saying directly, no, I know I have to do it. That's why I'm so bummed out about it. You know, if I thought there was a way out, I would use my energy to get out of it. But I knew, of course, that I was, it was just foolish. I was just going in circles. And so I let myself do it for a while, and then I buckled down, dealt with it. But think about it. Think how much energy is dissipated and misdirected, and what, what powerhouses we'd be if we didn't. Swami tells a story at a certain point in the building of Ananda, when uh, I think it's, uh, I don't remember the exact sequence, but it was like the fifth or sixth time that the whole project was threatened with rack or ruin because somebody was going to foreclose or some money was due. And he was driving home after class and there was some woman in the car with him and he was, he said he was literally trembling because he was so focused on the fact that he had to raise like $5,000 in two days or something like that, which was a lot more money then. And he had very few resources and he was just shaking like this and her effort was to calm him down. Oh, that's all right. Come to my house. We'll have some tea. You'll feel better, which was the wrong thing to say. And he turned to her and he said, I don't care how I feel. I just have to solve this problem. You know, he just was, his, his um, energy in this sense was not out of emotional agitation, but just out of sheer determination. And it was like, don't distract me with how I feel. That's not the issue. The issue is that energy has to be directed and this has to be accomplished. Men are better at this than women. I mean, the masculine is better than this, and that this than the feminine. Most men are better at it than most women, but not universally by any means. Because women keep a lot of things going at the same time. You know, they, they know how they feel about things all the time, whereas men often just know what they have to do. That's the masculine force, and that's why men and women don't get along so well all the time. <laughs> not hard to, really not hard to figure out when you think about it. Okay? Now, any other questions? Can we open the windows? I find it warm in here. I don't know if you want to. Okay. Yes, sure. Okay. Result was. was the result. Uh -huh. And I also connected with how um, I connected it with how wonderfully her life goes in so many ways. Uh, interesting. You know, she loves her job. They love her. She gets five thousand dollars. You know, I mean, uh -huh. it's just and I, you know, you just put the two of them together. Right. And I just thought, isn't that? That's very interesting. You know, she, 
and she does it a crack. She goes, oh, isn't this just the greatest? Isn't this beautiful? Mm -hmm. She loves what she does. That's a, Sharon, that's very interesting. You know, I've, uh, there was a woman who happened to be a flute player, as a matter of fact, who, who um, I, I remember when this thought came to me. Whenever she would play, and she played beautifully as a woman from many years ago. And I would say, oh, that was just so beautiful. No, no, she said, I didn't play very well. That wasn't really, I'm just really, I wish I could do it better. And I would, I put up with this for a while. Finally, I said, you know what you're really doing? You're insulting my taste. Because I'm telling you it was good, and you're telling me I'm too much of a Philistine to know it was good, and you really know it's crummy. I said, you know, I'm complimenting you. You're insulting me. This is not really a very fair bargain. But it was the same thing. It was like whenever the energy starts to rise, I want to make sure and bring it down. And we have the very wrong idea that the more we criticize, that criticism is the way to make things better. Now, if you think about it in terms of child raising, it becomes very clear. If you have a child and you always want to make it better by telling them they're doing it wrong, you know, what, what's the result of that? I mean, it's, it's, it's a no-brainer. Everyone knows that you have to, you can't just constantly criticize. That doesn't really bring the best. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to be dopey. You know, there's always room for improvement. But one can also be enthusiastic for the mere joy of having done it. And yes, that creates a lot more magnetism. Plus, I was also saying on Sunday, which you heard me say, which is a lot of people take you at your word. <laughs> and so if you would constantly remind them that your work is mediocre, then they give you a mediocre rating. They don't even know why they're doing it. It's just that you have told them. And if you don't have any more faith in what you're doing than that... I mean, but, but the key, tr the, key, the truth is to be just truthful, you know, and if it really was your best effort, you can just rejoice in it. And if it really charms what you, what you made because it's your expression, you can just rejoice in it and not really be concerned. I remember the steps that I built up to my trailer when I lived in a little trailer at Ananda Village were the most pathetic piece of carpentry that anybody had ever seen. And I just was so proud of them. I would point to them and, and you know, Real carpenters would just look at them like, what kind of a brain-dead person built this? You know, there was no logic to it, and all the nails were bent. But I had done it myself, you know, and it was that same sort of thing. And they, would, they, they lasted me as long as I lived there. They probably would last forever because they were all overbuilt and, you know, just completely wrong. <laughs> but, but that joyful expectation, absolutely. And by all means, when other people tell you that they've enjoyed something, don't be such a cat as to tell them that they're wrong. And the other thing that does, you see, is that forces everybody to keep complimenting you. It's a, it's a subtle ploy to get them to keep telling you how good you are, right? Oh, no, it wasn't good. Oh, yes, it was. Yes, it was. Oh, really, I could have done better. No, no, it was fabulous. So instead of getting one compliment, you get four until people get mad at you. But it also makes it tiresome. You don't want to compliment them the next time because you just get into an argument. <laughs> but, it's, it, but, but maintaining creativity is also very tricky. And if after every creative effort there's this sense of self-condemnation, then it's that much harder to get the next. And so a critical, strangely, a critical faculty is your greatest enemy in, in being creative. Because if you get into the habit of always criticizing after you create, it gets to be harder and harder to create. If you get in the habit of being enthusiastic, it's very easy to start again because you remember what a good time we had the last time. And I mean, very few of us are really su superb at what we do, so what difference does it make? You know, if our best effort is just kind of a little above medium, that's, that's all right. You know, very few of us have really given our lives to being great. 
in specific ways. It was such a touching story, but I don't know who the violinist was, but it was a true story. Somebody heard this great violinist play and afterwards said, oh, I'd give my life to be able to play like that. And he said, I have. (laughs) (laughs) But most of us are doing many things. (laughs) So just be happy for what you can do. And Swamiji's definition of creativity is so important in this context, and both of originality and creativity. He says, to be original is not to be different. It's merely to act from the origin point of your own nature. In other words, if it comes from inside of you, it's original. And he uses the simple example of the words, I love you, which are really about as unoriginal as words can be. But when you say them from your true inner self, they sound like they've never been spoken before because they're, they're a real expression of your own nature. And, and creativity he defined as giving outward expression to the inner inspiration you feel. Just as simple as that. And when you look at it like that, you give outward expression, the form that it finally takes means a lot less than the joy of your inspiration in doing it. That's why I love those carpentry steps so much, because I just... It was such a, an expression of my own enthusiasm and uh, just chutzpah in trying to do it, you know? That it was a very creative project for me, pointlessly ugly, but nonetheless. You know, so, I mean, your friend probably feels that. She probably feels greatly inspired inwardly, and so everything she does makes her happy. Yeah. It's just tremendous magnetism, yeah. But, mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. But you know, even as a musician, it's the consciousness with which you play that gives it the energy. The picture that you see, everything. It's, if, children, if children do things badly but do it with a full blast, you're just so inspired by it. It's not an objective standard that's being met, it's a subjective one. And the, even a mediocre musician who does it with a lot of joie de vivre, you know, you just, you're just caught up in it. And even if it's bad, it's good. Dead, yeah. Puts you totally to sleep because it's so excellent. There was this, we saw this cellist in, uh, uh, where were we? Venice. Um, And they had these uh, Vivaldi concerts. He was the most astonishing technical person. You just didn't know a person could play cello like that. And he was just awful. I mean, he would do these incredibly show-off things, but there was just so... It was, I don't know, it was just awful. I actually had to walk out on his encore. It was so bad. Even though it was virtuoso of an amazing degree. But it was terrible. Because his consciousness, there was something just wrong with his consciousness when he played. So you just have to remember that when it's you. It's easy to talk about it when it's somebody else. <laughs> magnetism is everything. That's the mantra. That's what we're trying to get through with this. Magnetism is, any, is everything. Yeah. Right? Any other questions or thoughts here? Well, tonight's chapter gives me an opportunity that I rarely get, which is I get to talk about tithing. I love tithing. And I almost never can find an opportunity to do it. I have Sunday mornings. But people frown upon ministers talking too much about money. (laughs) Even though tithing has nothing to do with money at all. It's very, very incidentally about money. Um, I still have very seldom managed to work it into a sermon. So tonight is my night. Um, The reason I want to talk about it is because uh, 
You're the reason I like to talk about it. We try to get this. You know, money is this gigantic issue. That's why everybody's here tonight, and money is just a big issue in life. We all know this. It, it just You can be as idealistic as you want, but as Yogananda said, as I quoted at the beginning, every good, noble, or philanthropic enterprise sooner or later comes down to a matter of money. It just has to be dealt with. It's a bottom line. Now, we work with um, all the other elements of ourself that we're trying to change. You know, we're trying to develop devotion, so we chant. We're trying to have a relationship with God. We pray. We're trying to learn to concentrate. We concentrate on the breath. We have all these methods that we use. And one of the fabulous benefits of uh, Yogananda's path and the whole path of self-realization is that it's very practical. In fact, one of the elements that Yogananda brought is this, this practical approach to spirituality. That's why self-realization is really not Hinduism at all. It's not even really Indian. It's a, it's a unique distillation of the, of the practical practice, not the rituals, none of that. That's why we don't have hardly any of that, just the t- tiny, tiny bit of it, because it's about being practical. So we're working with the subject of money, and we're sort of trying to say you have to have these attitudes and these attitudes and these attitudes, but you don't have a lot of actual ways to practice. I mean, you can practice in your job and you can practice in your work, but it's a, that's a big project. Tithing is a technique. It's a technique that you can bring into your life, that you can work with, that begins to give you the right consciousness on many levels about what money is, where it comes from, how to relate to it, how to see it in right perspective, how to increase your your fundamental prosperity magnetism by getting into the flow of how how money actually works. Um, The concept of tithing came into Ananda maybe 20 years ago, maybe a little bit more than that, when we were, as I've sort of talked to you about this several times in this class, sort of transitioning out of having absolutely nothing having very little. It was a big progress we were having. <laughs> and somehow or another, well, somebody learned about tithing, and we all sort of got behind it. Because it wasn't specifically something that Yogananda taught, at least as far as I know. I've never heard Swamiji say that Yogananda taught specifically tithing. But he did definitely speak of the great benefit that comes to you from helping a spiritual work or giving your money to a spiritual work. But we introduced the subject of tithing, and we sort of all started with our little bit. You know, this was... We started tithing at the time when, when my salary was $50 a month, no, no bank accounts. But the, the fabulous thing, let me just even define tithing a little bit more clearly. Tithing is basically to give a set percentage of everything you have to the source of your spiritual inspiration. Okay, It's not really about this church or that church. It's whatever. You, you're, you're giving it to God, but it's very hard to give it to God. As, as the, the joke goes, you know, the man, was, he wanted to give money to God, so he threw it up in the air, and he figured whatever was God's, he would take, and whatever landed, he could have. <laughs> so you can't really, you know, there's no place to send it. So what you give it to is you give it to that which brings God into your life. Whatever is the most, most profound expression of God in your reality, you give the money back to it with the clear understanding that this is your way of giving back to the divine, because if that if you support that entity or project or person or whatever it is, then, then the, the divine energy rolls on. Um, and the principle of tithing also is that it's not like a donation or it's not like supporting a project that you like. Oh, I think the school needs more 
uh, pianos, I'll get them pianos. They need textbooks, I'll get them textbooks. I want to see the spiritual eye in the sanctuary, I'm going to buy the spiritual eye. Because that's saying, I want, I like, I prefer, I want to choose. And there's some personal preference involved. If you, if you tithe, there's no strings, there's no connection. You just give it to God, and it's God's business what he does with it. And in fact, in that sense, tithing is different than donating. And tithing also is based on the, on the premise that your very ability to earn money is a gift from God. And that it's only because of divine law working, you know, to, to give you health and energy and opportunity and intelligence or whatever it might be, that you're able to, to work at all and get a paycheck. And so it's a commission. It's an automatic commission that you have to pay for the fact that your divine agent has given you a job. And so it's not even your money. When I, when I was first starting tithing and having a very simple mind financially, um, I just would always just do it in a very physical way. As soon as I'd have any kind of a check or any cash, I, I would have two envelopes in my purse. When I used to travel and teach, and money would come into my hands from all sorts of ways, from counseling, from class receipts, from this and that, I'd always have two envelopes. And as soon as I had the money in my hand, the first thing I would do is I would break out 10% of it, you know, that whatever had to be done to do that, and I would put that into, into God's envelope and put the rest into mine. So there was never the thought in my mind, oh, this is my money, and then I have to give away some of it. It was like 90% is mine, 10% is God's. That's how it works. And so the fabulous thing about it, the tradition of tithing is one-tenth. That is, actually, tithing came to Moses on Mount Sinai, which I, I only found out myself when I was doing some research on this. People think about it as something that Jesus began. But in fact, Jesus merely confirmed the ongoing Jewish practice. And when you, when you go back into the Bible, you find out that among the other commandments that Moses got on Mount Sinai was exact instructions about, about the necessity to tithe. They talk about how the, uh, the priest or whomever shall stand with his staff raised and nine sheep shall pass under it and then the staff will come down and the tenth sheep shall be taken away. And then nine more will pass. I mean, that's exactly how it's told. This is uh, from God on Mount Sinai through the burning bush. I'm not really quite sure how the picture worked. But it was from the earliest revelations of the Western culture and whether it existed prior to that or not. Now, it's an important aspect of it because what you have to understand was going on with Moses, which is worth knowing. Um, it wasn't probably exactly like it, it is in the movie The Ten Commandments, but the basic picture was that the Jewish people were devoted to, to the, the true God, which in that sense meant to a higher understanding of divine truth than the pagans around them who were propitiating these various deities and imagining that these deities had power and they fought with each other and all these things, whereas the Jews understood the, the transcendental nature of the divine. At the same time, the Jews had fallen onto hard times and were an enslaved people. And uh, the, uh, the power of the divine, a prayer of love went up from earth and God responded. And Moses was an avatar who descended to liberate that sincere group of people from the oppression that they were under and then to help them establish themselves in harmony with divine law. 
So Moses was really laying out for them, look, you say this is what you really want, you know, to be in harmony with this higher truth, these are all the things you're going to have to do to really live it. Now, the, the, the level of evolution or the, the times, whatever it was, demanded that it be very exact. And that's why the Ten Commandments came down just as they did, and the whole tone of it was very law-oriented. Of course, it had to be joy-oriented. It had to be love-oriented because it was a, he was an avatar. It was a message from God. But the, what has drifted up from that time was the rigidity of it. But it's interesting that in that context of really saying, okay, you're sincere about wanting to be in tune with the Spirit, well, this is what you have to do, that he actually said nine sheep shall pass under and the tenth sheep will go. Um, it, in this case, it went to support the priests, to support the, the source of God's word to the people. And then it just became a Jewish custom. Now, tithe means traditionally a tenth, because that's what tithe means. But the principle is a percentage. And I, I, I put that in here because as I explain the practice in more passionate detail as I go on here, it's very important to realize that you don't have to start with 10. Just like when you start Kriyas, you only start with 14. You don't start with 108 because you have to practice and begin to get better at it. But the concept of percentage is the key factor because percentage takes away the ego's decision about whether or not I can afford it. You see, if you have a fixed reality that you just pass over as God's portion, preferably 10, if you, if you have the courage, which I'll encourage you to have the courage to do, you don't have to stop each time and say, can I afford this? I, now, where I was starting a little while ago is when this tithing practice first came in at Ananda and we just had such tiny bits of money, um, Swami from time to time would take, uh, he would take sometimes trips to Carmel and sometimes groups of us would go with him. Swamiji has always had a marvelous sense of the flow of money, and he's had to work against a lot of our fears over the years. He's always had a, a powerful sense of magnetism, and a lot of us have had a great sense of lack. Uh, from time to time, he would just put us in circumstances where we had to spend more money than we had, partly just to help us with our courage. And you, my rule of thumb has always been in my life, always, that if it is for an obvious spiritual purpose, especially if in my life, if it relates to my opportunities to be with Swami, I always spend it and I know it'll work out. So he took us on this trip to Carmel where we spent so much money in the three or four days that we were there that Jyotish actually computed it how much money we spent per hour per person. <laughs> the numbers have gone from my mind and they might not seem that impressive now, but they were really impressive at that time. And we had all just started tithing. Tithing was just coming in as a practice. And so there was this thought, well, you know, I'm not going to be able to afford to tithe this month. But in fact, we, we reversed it completely and said just the opposite. You know, we are so overextended that we, we dare not stop tithing now because we, we really have to have a divine flow going here or we're sunk. We're just totally sunk. And we joked about him just sort of setting the whole thing up so that we would be forced to keep tithing and not be tempted to give up. Now you see how what an interesting shift that is? The question is, is there a finite amount of money in the world? Or is there a magnetic flow of money? Am I the custodian of my own prosperity or am I working in cooperation with the divine? Okay. Now, it, it, the, the practice of tithing, of simply saying, and what's, what I love about tithing is no matter how poor or how rich you are, 
everybody always feels that they never have quite enough. And 10%, if you're a little, if you have a little tiny salary, that 10% looks like such a, a big amount of money. And if you have a great big salary, the check is so big, you know? So either way, either end of it, there's always this slight sense of, there may be this slight sense of, oh dear, I'm not quite sure I can do it. In fact, one uh, well-known prosperity expert, a man from Australia whose name escapes me, said that if it doesn't make you nervous, you're not tithing enough. <laughs> he said, because it has to be an actual act of affirming your faith. If it becomes something that you can just do automatically, then you're not pushing far enough. Now, I temper that with common sense. Because just in the same way that when you first get on the spiritual path, as an example, it's not really such a good idea necessarily to be so extreme in your practice that you end up practicing what we tend to call boing back yoga, which is where you push yourself too far that you boing back, right, like this. So it's also true that in any practice that you do, you have to do it in a realistic relationship to who you actually are. And, and you have to exercise your common sense. But the simple practice of, of beginning to see your money as something that is a gift to you from the divine, and therefore it is only natural that you would um, offer some of that back. And, and the, the conscious act, knowing you don't have enough to pay your bills and still giving out that 10% every single month because it's not yours. You have no right to keep it. You have to give it back does remarkable things to your consciousness, especially if you do it very consciously. Instead of saying, oh, look what's being taken away from me, instead you say, oh, look what I have. I have, the, I have enough to be able to give something. And because it's a percentage, if you're only making a dollar, you only give a dime. If you're making you know, $10,000, you give $1,000. If you're making 100000 Recently in Seattle, this couple, many of you have read the story, but this couple started when they were just starting up in business, when they were nearly bankrupt. I mean, they went to the edge of bankruptcy, but they read about tithing, and because they were in such financial straits, they just started doing it, and they just did a solid 10%. And it was $50 a month because they were earning 500 a month, you know. It was $100 a month when their salary went up a little. Well, recently they tithed a million dollars because the company the man built went sold for $10 million. But to them, it was just the same. You know, it had been $50 when it was 500 and it was a million when it was 10 million. But it was the same exercise. If 10% belongs to God, it just belongs to God all the way through. And they were very frank about their, their loyalty to, to Divine Mother made Divine Mother loyal to them. Okay. The other thing about tithing, especially when you give it away without any egoic involvement to whatever legitimate expression of the spirit that you're a part of, is that also the very work that you're doing is also doing God's work. Because sooner or later, everything requires money. And if, if you become a constant support of something that helps others to grow spiritually, there's just a complete a, a karmic um, gift back to you. You know, everything that we do gets sets energy in motion. And if, if your daily labor helps bring other people to a state of spiritual inspiration through the agency of other people, perhaps. But nonetheless, they wouldn't be able to do it if you didn't work and didn't contribute. And that creates that kind of magnetism, which, what, makes you lucky, makes you healthy, gives you a fortunate birth, gives you a positive attitude? 
Yogananda went so far as to say that those who support a divine work will achieve divine consciousness from doing that. If you give money, you will achieve a higher state of consciousness from doing that. Now you think part of it will, but don't I have to do my kriyas and sorts of things? Can I just buy my way into heaven? No. And it's, it's, it, it remains just simply a question. But the fact remains that if people are helped because you helped, then, uh, then their joy comes back to you and then they help others and this whole enormous cycle gets set into motion. And the more freely you have done that, well, the, least, the less ego-interfering energy, the more you have just done it as a humble instrument of the Spirit, the more, um, the more open the channel is to, to have that come back to you. Does that all make sense? And then there's just the simple exercise, and that's what I was saying, the simple exercise of saying, do I really have faith that God will take care of me? Do I really believe that Divine Mother is in charge of my life? Do I really think that there's an infinite flow of abundance? Do I really believe that spirit is first and that my first duty is to help others spiritually? Or do I really think that first I have to take care of myself and then if I have time and energy, then I'll do something for someone else? And it's such a simple, just straightforward exercise. You know, every month or every dollar that comes in. You know, I, I, uh, I don't handle my own finances anymore. And David, does it, David doesn't feel the need to be as, as much as I was. But I loved, I miss it. I loved being paid $60 for counseling and peeling six off. You know, I just love doing it. And your mind gets so set on it that you never earn $60. You only earn 54 And so there's no sense that, oh, I, I've lost something. It's just like, oh, look how fat the tithing envelope is getting. You know, look how much of God's money is coming through. There's a, a very, very wealthy man who wrote a book, the name of which I forget, but he was a bazillionaire. But he, he quickly figured out that 90% was God's, 10% was his. And he lived modestly, even though he, he earned vast sums of money, and he just, just figured 10% was all he needed, so he just reversed it. He just flipped it around and just swore that that was the secret of his great success, which in many ways it is. But it's not merely that he gave the money and you can buy your way into heaven, but the kind of consciousness that would have the courage to do that. You can see how much faith and magnetism and energy there is in that. And that's where, if you're comfortable already and you, you easily do 10%, then, then congratulations to you. If you don't, experiment with it. And just really see you know, every time a dollar comes into your hand, see if you can take 10, ten cents of it off. And, and watch what happens to your mind every time you try it and see how far you can work with it. Or, or tithe 1% or 2% or 3%, but, but choose a fixed sum and don't stop and ask yourself whether I can afford it. Because very after a while you begin to think, I really, just like we were saying, I can't afford not to. I don't dare interrupt the flow at this point. You know, I'm entirely dependent on Divine Mother. And if I don't offer back, then why will she take care of me? I remember years ago at Ananda Village, there were 32, 30 members in the community, and this one very small-minded man who eventually left decided that 30 people was about the right size for a community. And he called a meeting, uh, which uh, Swamiji heard about and came to the meeting. Swami's answer was so beautiful and so simple. He said, of course we can't close the doors of Ananda. He said, if we close our hearts to Divine Mother, she will close her heart to us. Not out of unkindness, but because if our hearts are closed, she can't come in. It's as simple as that. 
So we all say, oh, I, you know, I'm devoted this way, I'm devoted that way. But when it really comes down to the hard nub of it, and that's where tithing is so fabulous, this is the real, you know, everyday cold light of day. You know, we, we can say all these different things, but this cold light of day, how much faith do I really have? How much faith can I really develop? Okay, that's my little story. What do you think? <laughs> Thoughts, comments, questions? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's great. Um, I tied for a year at 5%. Mm-hmm. It was good. It was good. It had a good run of cheese, but 10% was magical. Mm-hmm. It was just really, I could really feel things change. It was very, very interesting. Isn't that interesting? I only give people a lesser percentage because I don't want to frighten you. <laughs> yes, Peggy? Um, I was in such a restless perspective when I was a child, and all of my pain was a restlessness of just perceiving too much. Uh-huh. Every time I would get something. Mm-hmm. And I remember I was in my twenties, and um, I uh, I would cry. I remember I got I inherited um, forty four pickup truck. Um, and I just loved it. And then I got something else and something else was a bunch of things. And, and yet I was so restless. I would talk to people and say, "What happened?" But I asked them to experience the same thing. A lot of people said, "No, they were happy for having what they had, but I I wasn't happy." That's a very interesting story, but I'm not surprised. It has. That's why I bothered to say that Moses got it from Mount Sinai. There is something profound that really puts you in balance. Not more, you know, not more than ten percent is asked, but ten percent is asked. Interesting. Yes. Well, you think in terms of the the most uh, whatever brings God closest to you. So, whatever whatever channel is is your primary channel for receiving God's inspiration. Now, if uh, people people tithe, there's some people who tithe to East West Bookstore because they get their most inspiration they get in this area is from East West Bookshop. People will tithe to the Sierra Club. Because the most inspiration they get is from there is in nature. Naturally, people tithe to Ananda, because that this can be the, this is their primary source. So it's really wherever you, whatever is most directly meaningful to you, because you're giving it to God. But as I said, that's a little hard to do. So whatever delivers God to you, that's what you give it back to. And it's better if you can to just get some pattern that you don't have to keep reexamining. You know, if you say, well, I have these five places and every month I decide which, because that, again, gets you too involved in it. But, you know, make a plan for a year or something like that, and then maybe every January, if you're, if it's not clear to you, you can reevaluate it or something like that. Does that make sense? Okay. Any other questions? Comments or thoughts? Yeah, no. 
yeah. And I was just like crunching my face, thinking so hard about that. And I said, yeah. Yeah. And I was like, yeah. And I said, yeah. But you see, you see, it's fascinating. It's fascinating to watch your mind run. Ten percent, but that's so much. You'll say. And then you'll say, for the growth from the net, do I subtract the utilities or just the rent? You know, what about the insurance? <laughs> you know, what about my debt repayment? You just sort of ask all these questions back and forth. No, it's going. It's okay. Thank you. But thank you. That's a very good idea. Did it actually auto reverse this time? Good. Okay. Mm-hmm. The concept is remarkable that, you know, the joy of writing that check, I'd never imagined that. This all sounds, I mean, I'm, I didn't really ask for testimonials, but I really appreciate it. <laughs> because it really is, it has more power than you expect it to have. That's the only one I can say. Yeah, it's wacky. It's way out of proportion. That's why I'm saying it's a spiritual practice that has nothing to do with money. But money, ooh, money just really gets us where we are. Money has everything to do with our security, our sense of self-worth, our sense of faith, our fear. It just hits everything. And how do you get access to those things? You want to be more secure, you want to have more faith, but how do you get access to it? And that's why tithing is such a fabulous thing, because it just worms its way right in there, pins you right to the wall. And then you sort of get like, you want to do it, that's why I say start with 1%. If you're too frightened to do 10, just start with 1. Because at least then it's out of your hands, you have to do it. You can't ask the question. Yeah? I like what you said about the going, going back yoga because I think that um, I kind of did that. Because uh-huh. I first understood about tithing back in 89. Mm-hmm. When I first was consciously on the spiritual path, one of the first things that really got my attention was the people church I was going to was a prosperity workshop. And I always had money issues, and I got these ideas and went, great, you know, this is wonderful, and just went for it. But it was probably too much because I've just struggled back and forth every week. But, um, but I've almost always, in that over 10 years, kept tithing. I would kind of follow that maybe for three or four months to know, I know this is the key, and I just come back to it. And the thing that has been really important for me to understand, and talking to Nancy Kendall was part of how I came to understand it, was because then I would say, I've been doing this for all this time. How come I still have these incredible money issues, you know? Because I expected it to be the magic bullet. And what Nancy sort of said, you know, she said, Sherry, you have really hard financial karma. Mm -hmm. And so I think, I look back and I think probably the tithing was the thing that at least kept me making progress. You're still, you're still alive. You're not homeless. You're still eating. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so. But but I mean, as opposed to comparing, you know what we tend to do. We hear those stories and then we go, we want to. But also, listen, go ahead. I'm sorry. so, So I guess I just want to share that because in case there's anyone else, with hard financial karma, that was a, that was an important thing for me to understand. That it wasn't that I was doing it wrong; that somehow I was tithing it wrong. You know, because it was sort of like I'm tithing, but it wasn't. Well, I'm going to take it a different way. Okay. It's like it's your way of saying, "I know what's best for me. I'm going to give this to God, but I have a deal going here. I'm going to give you this ten percent, and you're going to ease my my burdens in this particular way." That's why I say it's not about money; it's about faith. And it's, it's just about personal power and commitment. And maybe it results in prosperity. I don't really like, I don't mind the tithing stories that say ever since I've been tithing, I've had all the money I need. 
ever since I've been tithing, I've been rich, rich, rich. I mean, no harm. But if you're, if you're tithing for what you're going to get back, you're not really giving it because it's God's. Yeah. And that's where a lot of the come. Yeah. Yeah. And you're doing it because it's right to do. There's, there's, there's pro- progress on the spiritual path, which many of you have heard this model before, so I'm just going to touch it for a minute. As you progress on the spiritual path, you reach a certain level, which we call the Vaisha level. And the Vaisha, this is a complicated system, but I'm just going to use it. And Vaisha rough, roughly translates Vaisha. Is there an H in there, folks? Yeah, Vaisha. And it rough, roughly translates into the concept of merchant. And it's not that merchants are bad people or anything. The concept of a merchant is that they'll give you a fair bargain. You give them the money, they give you the product, right? But it's always a bargain. It's always a trade. You know, you, you're not a merchant if you just give it away. You're a philanthropist. If you give it away, you're a merchant if you... And, and, it's, and it's good to get to the point of being a Vaisha because below that is when you want something for nothing. So you get, you know, get past the point of being a parasite and you get all the way to the point of being a Vaisha, <laughs> right? Where you are willing to give for what you get. Um, but higher than that is the level of the Kshatriya. And Kshatriya is a, is a, is a soldier... It's a soldier king, is the idea. And king, in this sense, means, in the, in the best sense, a ruler of the people, one who sacrifices their own welfare for the welfare of the others. And a soldier is one who will lay down his life for the cause he believes in. Now, you progress from being a parasite to being a Vaishya, where you're willing to trade, to being a Kshatriya, where you will sacrifice simply because you believe it's right. Okay? And when you reach the Kshatriya level, you do what's right, and you're not doing it because you're a merchant and you expect it to come back to you. Now, we have this transition where most of us live on the spiritual path, which is between the Vaishya and the Kshatriya level. And it's very, very pertinent to this whole money magnetism issue. Because if you're doing all these things with the Vaishya consciousness, oh, I'm going to get into into serviceful work, and I'm going to tie, that I'm going to do this. But if you do it like a merchant, I'm going to put all my little ducks in order, and then God's going to give me all these things back, right? You're not really working with the divine principles. You're working with certain, certain divine laws, and you can make it work. Good merchants can get rich. Okay, it will work. But if you yourself are evolving out of that stage into the Kshatriya stage, for you to make the divine law work. If you're coming up from a parasite to a merchant, you can be a very successful merchant. If you're graduating from being a Vaishya to being a Kshatriya, it won't work for you anymore. And that's, that's sort of something you have to kind of figure within yourself. You have to start doing it merely because it's right. And you don't, that's your reward. If God causes you to become homeless and starving, fine. If God makes you very, very wealthy, fine. You're not doing it as a merchant. You're doing it just because it's right. Now, that's the trickiest part. But once you kind of catch that, then you really start playing the divine law. Because nothing can go wrong in your life at that point, beginning at that point. Because I simply do what's right. And earlier in this book, there was the, you know, the word dharma, right action. And there was that, that saying, wherever there is dharma, wherever there is right action, there is victory. That's based on living at the Kshatriya level. 
Because on the merchant level, sometimes there's right action and it doesn't work at all. I do all the right thing and nothing comes back to me. But if we're thinking on the divine level in terms of true reward of consciousness, because it's no particular reward to have everything in this world work out great for you, folks. You might think that's true, but what really is the reward is for your consciousness to expand. So we get lots and lots of problems and lots and lots of things go wrong, but if we just keep doing the right thing, that's, I mean, I'm not really saying directly to you because what your point was also very well taken. But there's also this more subtle law. Well, as long as you're doing, as long as you're hoping for a result, you may get it, you may not. You never know. If you do, that's great. If you don't, well, there you have it. Does that make sense? Okay, any other comments or thoughts on that? You do have to be careful to say, this is my, this is my, to not make a bargain. Yeah, exactly. And so I, you know, I don't like tithing stories that are all about how rich we got, even though there's lots of tithing stories about how rich we got. I like the tithing stories that say, oh, I just feel so much happier since I started doing it. Because I feel like, just like Peggy said, I feel more in balance. I feel like I'm really behaving properly. And if you behave properly, where there is Dharma, there is always victory. And victory is victory over delusion, not victory over bankruptcy. Because you know you're sending it off and you know all the light that's going to come. Because you're tithing, as I was saying to you, Anne-Marie, you're tithing to something that is bringing you so much joy, and you know that if you give it out, then that, that'll just keep rolling on. And it's just, it's a marvelous uh, way to make it feel. And it's practical, too. If everybody in the world tithes, it just, spirit, I mean, in, in, when Moses was doing it, it was to support the priestly caste, because they needed the priests in order to make the whole thing run, and they had to be supported. But as long as you had the priests, you had society in balance. As long as they were supported, they could concentrate on doing this. If everybody on the whole planet <coughs> tithes to that which inspired them toward God, just think how all those sources of inspirations would also flourish. And you, just, you can see how the whole system would just work a lot better. And it works right now. God knows. Okay. Any other comments or questions? Then let's take a short break. Two things came up during the break, and I want to mention them both before we go on. Um, someone asked the question about how does, once you tithe, does that substitute for anything else that you do? And uh, no, 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 of course not. <laughs> the 10% you're giving to God was never yours. With the 90% that's left, there may be lots of other causes you want to support, specific causes. And they can say, oh, I love the altar. I think I'd like to help it. You know, I'm really fond of the school. I think I'll give money here. You know, I, this, you come to Sunday service and you put money into the donating. You, tithing does not absolve you from donating. <laughs> donating is your money. You decide what to do with it. Tithing is, you're not donating when you're tithing. 
you're just giving back that which was never yours in the first place. You see, there's a distinction there. And so donating you can direct according to your preferences, but tithing is an automatic thing. And you donating you decide whether you can afford it or not. It's discretionary. Does that make sense? But IRS counts the same. The IRS the same. They don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they don't know. The other question that came up was just a simple one. Can you tithe to an individual? And obviously you can't. I mean, many, when, we, when Ananda first started tithing, many people wouldn't hear of supporting an institution, but they would support Kriyananda because he was the source for so many people of their spiritual inspiration, and he was the primary channel through which the divine reached them. And to this day, I know people give their 10% just directly to him. I mean, you, may, you might have a priest in a church that you go to. I, even it could go if a particular musician music is your greatest source of spiritual inspiration. It's just completely between you and God. Um, but really, answer the question, what brings God the closest to me? And then support whatever that channel is. All right. Yes, Sharon? Sure. One of my earliest connections with Ananda, completely unbeknownst to me, is that I read um, how to submit the first nature book. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And, uh, I just knew I had tithing. I really? was just like so moved. Interesting. <laughs> and you know, I had to in the back of the book find an address of the publisher and just you know really? eventually he got it like months later I got the thing. Yeah, something. And then it was years before I could get was connected. Oh very interesting. <laughs> you know, I, this is this is this is not about tithing, but the the man who has been Ananda's attorney since the time we got our community, which was now 12 years ago, and has seen us through this long 11-year battle with SRF, and I won't go into all the details, but this wonderful man named John Parsons, who, who we just kind of, Sheila Rush at the time was working at Stanford, and he was on the board of directors of the group that she was working with, and we, we started the community here, and we had some tenant problems, and he was an expert, we called him. And, you know, years we're all in relationship, and he's become just like a stalwart knight for us in these great legal battles. A long time later, it turns out that, like 25 years ago or 20 years ago, Haridas, who's a musician at Ananda, recorded this beautiful piano versions of the chants, River of Joy, I think it's called, right? When John Parsons' wife courting him. <laughs> she used to invite him over and she would put on this beautiful piano music. <laughs> and she she won his affection with that tape and it turned out to be the tape from Ananda. Isn't that something? <laughs> so he sort of had this great debt to us and so did she. Because <laughs> you, just, you just don't know. Somebody who joined the church recently uh, had read Autobiography many years ago and they... Uh, were at their apartment house and they were recycling their junk mail and buried under, you know, buried up to here was this picture. They looked into the recycling bin and saw this picture of Yogananda and recognized it from the autobiography of a yogi, pulled it out of the garbage, and they recently became a member. <laughs> My favorite, though, was somebody who bought a, a calendar at a discount bin at the Safeway that was actually Kriyananda's words. He did these calendars. And she just lived on that calendar for a long time. And then one thing led to another. And the disciple is ready, the master comes. You just don't know he'll come. Okay, any other comments or questions? I do have a, another chapter which I want to whiz through also, if there's anything else that you all want to say.
Okay, I just want to touch a little bit on the statement that Swamiji makes in there in the next chapter, which is, even though you think you're working for money, if you do it with right consciousness, your gains are always spiritual. And then there's that statement of Yogananda's, um, making money honestly and industriously to serve God's work is the next greatest art to realizing the... That's quite a statement, because there's several things intended here. One is to try to um, break down, which, which our culture is doing a pretty good job of, the um, sense of difference between that which is spiritual and that which is material. And Swamiji talks a lot about it in that chapter, about the man that he visited who said, you know, my real life starts when I get to my meditation room. And, and Swamiji just felt sorry for him because of all the time he had to spend doing things that he didn't think were related. Um, it's very easy, depending on what kind of samskars you have, some scars are past life impressions. You know, I know that for myself, and I, I've shared these stories with you, I, I came, my past life impressions, I think, were in a lot of monasteries, and I was quite happy in those monasteries. I, mean, I think by now I've transitioned way out of that, but I used to say if, you, if I was a little pebble and you threw me in the air, I, I would let me come down where I would naturally come down. I'd fall behind a cloister wall somewhere. I remember being in Greece, and just this little stone, we just were visiting some old monastery, this little stone cell with a little cold water tap and a little flat pallet. I just loved it. I just was so happy there. David just could not get out of there fast enough. Because <laughs> he comes from the the, the 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 saintly king side of it, you know? <laughs> from the monarch. When we were building when we were building this little house that we built at Ananda Village, which is now the guest house at the Crystal Hermitage, some of you have stayed in it. Um, when we were building that, David's plans just got so grand. You know, it's an 1,100 square foot house. It was just like, you know, it's just like, honey, we're not the Maharaj and Maharani anymore. We just don't have the money. We can't do it. But his just energy like this, and, and, and on the positive side, what I learned from him was, uh, let me phrase it differently. When we actually had to start building that house, with, was I was very frightened of building that house because I had this real strong association in my mind that as long as you were poor, you were spiritual. And as soon as you got too much, then you wouldn't be spiritual anymore. David had, has always seen everything as a flow of energy. And however that energy manifests, you should just manifest it correctly, which is the way Kriyananda feels, who's also just has no sense of this is right, this isn't right, this I can do, this I can't do. You know, all those little fear-oriented thoughts that are judging, judging, judging. And so what, what Yogananda is talking about there is that energy, money, is a, is a tremendous expression of energy. And the ability to manifest money is a tremendous expression of our capacity, which we get into next week, to concentrate, to um, persevere, to put out energy against obstacles, to be courageous, to be affirmative, if you can put out all those right attitudes in the, in the field of making money, what you have really developed is this tremendous capacity to direct energy. And as Swami writes there, once you know how to direct energy, it doesn't matter. You, can, you just can direct it toward whatever you're attracted to direct it toward. So very often it's a stage, a necessary stage in our spiritual evolution is to learn to make our, our ideals concrete, um, to really exercise our willpower and not just pray for deliverance. 
Um, there's a story about Ramakrishna, who was a great sage of the last century who lived in India. And at that time in India, there were a lot of uh, caste restrictions and so on like that, and there were a lot of orthodox people around him, and a, a theater people and dancers and so on were considered low caste. And Ramakrishna was a high Brahmin. And, and so this group of theater people came, and Ramakrishna welcomed them with open arms, and one of them became a great disciple of his, um, Girish, Girish Ghosh, I think, or no, I, I, that's wrong. I don't have his name correctly. But anyway, um, he was a famous playwright, a Bengali playwright at that time. And uh, many of the Brahmins were scandalized at the way Ramakrishna welcomed these low caste people. But they were really good artists, you know, they were great artists, in fact. And afterwards, Ramakrishna said he scorned their scorn. And he responded by saying, he said, Look, the God they presently worship is the God of art, he said, but they know how to worship. <laughs> and it's a very, very important point because someone may, may profess to worship a greater good than art or a greater good than theater or something like that, but if you don't know how to worship, you're not necessarily a better devotee. And so someone may profess, you know, a kind of disdain for the material plane and a disdain for getting involved in business or in this, but, but it may, in fact, just be an inability to worship in the sense of, of, of saying that this is the central reality of my life and I will dedicate myself to it, or an inability to simply do what is needful, to respond to life with an attitude of, if this is what's asked of me, this is what I'll do. And so very often... The peculiarity of human life is that we are put in this very difficult situation where earning a living is just this huge part of our lives. You know, the only exceptions are the, the tropical islands from time to time. Swamiji remarked about Hawaii after his first visit there. He said, before the missionaries came and really you know, changed the culture and brought disease and so on, he said, living in Hawaii must have been like not quite incarnating on the material plane because it was so beautiful and you could live effortlessly. You know, you just the fish were in the ocean, the coconuts were on the tree, the climate was so comfortable. You just nothing was required. You could just sing and dance and live, and that's all. But but most of the time we have to just put out a tremendous amount of energy just to make it work on a regular basis. And it's not like there's such a great good in that. I mean in the in the end point but the means is very important to us. And so especially, and, and the caveat that's important is when, especially when we do it to serve God's work. Now God's work may be the maintenance of your family. God's work may be the creation of a company that you believe in that really does something worth doing. Just merely making money for selfish purposes or, or, or in the process of creating something that isn't worthwhile is people moving from being parasites to being merchants. And it may still be progress for them. You know, the people who, who propagate things that at a higher level you would realize are not valuable anymore may still not be the wrong thing for them. You, that's a very important thing that you always have to realize. But once you, once you uh, get selfish, get, get selfish enough to put out energy for what you want, then you have to move to a higher level of doing it. And sometimes your own magnetism in money may be hampered by the fact that you're not idealistic enough about what you're doing. 
there is too much self-concern. Maybe there needs to be a dedication to a project you believe in more. Maybe tithing needs to come into it. Maybe there has to be a greater sense of this is an exercise in training my magnetism. And Swami talks about the story, which is really the story of this book, which was what he had to do in order to build Ananda. And the years, the beginning years of it, when he single-handedly just had to earn thousands of dollars every month at a time when thousands of dollars was a lot of money. You know, I just had the realization, just reading this and thinking about this, that there was a point, Kriyananda was 22 years old, he met Yogananda. And he just came to California, became a disciple of Yogananda. Three and a half years later, Yogananda died. Kriyananda was a monk in Self-Realization Fellowship, which is the monastic order that Yogananda founded. He, he was there for a total of 14 years. He was 36 years old at the end of 14 years. He was thrown out of SRF, just expelled, um, without warning, just thrown out. He, he was a fully professed monk. He had nothing. He had $1,500. They gave him $1,500 when he was thrown out. He was forbidden to come and to even contact anybody he knew. I mean, his whole life, everybody that he had built his adult life on, totally forbidden. He was in New York City. As it happened, his parents had just landed in New York City from Europe. They lived in California. He got in the car with them, and he drove him back to, to the Bay Area, to Atherton, where they lived. He was completely alone and essentially penniless. And he just determined in his mind that he had something to do for God. And that was to build this community. And now, I mean, all of us are sitting here because he just didn't give up. I mean, it's really a phenomenal story when you really think about it, and that's what that book is. But how can you say, and, and the, in the course of that, he had to raise, you know, thousands and tens of thousands, you know, probably millions of dollars by the end, and gradually attracted people, now hundreds, thousands of people who were all equally committed but in the early years of it that he was describing there, you know, he, he was such a monk, and he'd even earlier in his life, when he was 16, his father had, had offered, because his family was, was well-to-do, not, not fabulously wealthy, but his father was a, an executive in Esso Oil Company, and, you know, they, were, they lived in Scarsdale, they lived in Atherton, they were well-to-do. And his father, at the age of 16, said, well, I'll buy you a tuxedo. And, and Swami answered, especially, essentially, I'll never need it. <laughs> you know, in fact, he said, I'm never going to earn enough money to ever pay taxes, which I don't think he actually ever had. But he just knew that money was not his goal, and then he became a monk, and then he found himself wanting to do something, and there was nobody to pay for it except him. But the other thing which is very interesting, and this has been a key in Swami's life the whole time through, he, he always made money by doing what he really believed in. You know, he always he made money by teaching. He made money by singing. He made money by writing songs. He made money by writing books. So the goal was to pass out the spiritual word, uh, the, the spiritual teachings that his guru had given him. And if he needed money, he did more of that. Instead of saying, I want to do this, so I'm going to earn money so I can do this. And he often always says to us, whenever we feel like we have a financial problem, he'll say, why don't you teach? Why don't you write? Why don't you make a tape? You know, why don't you do something that furthers your primary mission and then work in that direction? Now, not everybody is capable of doing that. But, uh, but it's a very important aspect that he never changed what he was doing just because he needed money. 
He just did more of it with the idea that the Divine Mother would help him, which she always did. And during those years, he had a schedule that looked like this. He would teach all over the Bay Area, from Marin down to San Jose. And he would teach Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. And then on and Friday nights, too, I think. And then after his classes on Friday nights, he'd teach all the way in Sacramento. He'd drive to Ananda Village. When he got to Ananda Village, he would dictate the 14 steps at night. Saturday morning, and all day Saturday and Sunday, he would give retreats at Ananda Village. Sunday afternoon, he would give private interviews. Sunday evening, he would drive home, and then he'd start again. And he just did it day after day, week after week, and then committed to build buildings, and just endlessly. But, and, and all the time it was money, all the time it was money. And he would say, Divine Mother, why are you doing this to me? Why is it always money? But he writes very simply there, when it was done, he realized it had never been about money. Money had just been the force of discipline, of faith and determination and effort and, and complete one-pointedness, this absolute concentration. There was just no space for anything else. It was just, this is what he'd set himself to do and this is what he had to do. And money plays into it. But if money is what it is, you're not really doing it anyway. You see, it's a very powerful story and a very important one to realize. Uh, if you have the energy and the determination, now people say, do what you love and the money will follow. I've heard that said. Yes, if you do it with sufficient magnetism, concentration, and determination, it will. It won't follow just because someone told you that. You know, it follows because, as I said at the beginning of this class, you know, it takes a lot of energy to earn money. And if you can put out that much energy in a directed way, you also earn money, if it's your karma, bear in mind. And Swamiji says something very interesting in this. Many times, I mean, it, it, this has come up, and it was like he said he never cared whether he would succeed or not. It's just that he knew he had to do it. His goal was to try. I mean, because there was no cooperative spiritual community based on Paramahansa Yogananda's teachings at that time. There was nothing. It was a completely new idea. There was no model. There was just Yogananda's idea that he wanted it. But that's the kind of um, committed energy. He just felt, well, this is what I feel my guru is calling me to do. And if he wants me to fail, that's fine. But I'll just do my absolute best. But you see, also, that awareness of what he was really trying to do, just as I started about how we lose our energy because we get, we get anxious, we get afraid, we have all these other things that dilute our energy. And the biggest one of the things that dilutes our energy so much is the fear of failure. And we spend so much time being afraid that we're going to fail that we don't put out enough energy to succeed. And we run this continually self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, where Swami's attitude always was, I will give it my all. And if it fails, it's God's choice, not mine. You know, very, very fascinating when you, you, know, you look at the example of someone who's done, done something remarkable on a great scale. And uh, it, it, it's funny also, this is just one last point about this. At Ananda Village... Now, most of the roads, some of them are actually asphalt and some of them are chip-sealed, which is this cheaper form of, of paving. But for many, many years, the roads were dirt. And uh, to get them paved at all was just a phenomenal accomplishment. And I remember this woman from Southern California drove up right after we had paved the roads at all. And she was with a group of other people in the van. And when she turned her van onto the roads and saw that the roads were paved, 
she stopped the car and fell out and sort of knelt on the paved road like that. And everybody else in the car was like, I mean, this is a paved road. What is the big deal? And she, I mean, I always appreciated her for this. She said, you have no idea. You have no idea what it took to pave this road. You know, you have no idea what effort was required by hundreds of people to bring this to the point where we could pave this road. And it's sort of, when you see something already accomplished, you tend not to realize that individuals just like yourself gave their life's blood, just like that violinist, I give my life to be able to play like that. Well, I did. Right? And, and it's so, I love it with Ananda because I've been here for so long. People will sort of say, why, do, why is this not done? Why is that not done? And I always say, my God, to get it to this point where you could criticize it, you have no idea how much effort went into that. You know? It's like when you bring, when you bring something up from nothing, even once in your life, it just changes you completely. You just get this completely different orientation about what can be done. If just once in your life you set your mind to do something and do it, you are never the same after that. Never the same. And so money, because it's required of us, and because the feedback is real direct, you know, is a really clear way of finding out what we're made of. And once we find out what we're made of, then we have the courage the next time and the next time and the next time and the next time. So don't, don't set your heart to becoming a millionaire, but set your heart to doing something good and, and put yourself into it completely. And uh, you'll just have remarkable results. It's a certainty. Because it's Dharma. And where there's Dharma, there's always victory. Okay, any comments or thoughts or questions? Well then... We will call it a night, and we will see you next week.